I'm Michael Morrell, and this is an Intelligence Matters Best of Episode for 2022. In September, we ran an episode with Bridge Colby, former senior official at the Pentagon in charge of strategy. Bridge is deeply concerned that the United States is not moving fast enough to build our military capabilities to deal with China. It was one of our most important episodes of the year. We'll be right back with a replay of that episode after a quick break. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Bridge, thank you for joining us on Intelligence Matters. It's an honor to have you. The honor's mine, Michael. Really appreciate being on with you. So, Bridge, last month you wrote an essay in the Wall Street Journal titled America's Industrial Base Isn't Ready for war with China. And I found it both compelling and and a bit frightening. And I immediately wanted you to join us here on the podcast to talk about it and really about kind of the bigger issue of are we prepared from a military perspective for this era of great power competition? So, you know, that's what we're going to dig into. Um, And I should also note that you wrote a book that was published about a year ago called The Strategy of Denial, America's Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. And I would imagine, Bridge, that the paperback version of that's going to come out soon? It, it is. Thanks for asking. It's coming out actually this month, September. Terrific. So the bottom line is I can't think of anyone better for us to have this conversation with in terms of, you know, are we ready for this new world that we live in? And what I would love to do, Bridge, is run through a series of kind of big picture questions, and then we'll kind of choose along the way where we want to dive a little deeper. So as you know better than anyone, the fundamental purposes of a military are to deter, right, our adversaries from taking actions that would undermine our security. And then two, to be able to defeat those adversaries in war, right, should that deterrence fail. And so my first question is, in this new era of great power competition, who are the adversaries that we need to deter, and what do we need to deter them from doing? I think that's an excellent question, and, and I think the right place to start. In fact, that's kind of how I start my book. I would say the states that are you know, threats and the entities that are threats, I mean, you know the terrorist threat better than anybody, 
haven't really changed all that much. It's more that the scale has changed, particularly because of China. So, I mean, I think, you know, if we go back to the sort of basics, which is one of the things I tried to do in my book, of, you know, what is American foreign policy and particularly defense policy, given it's about, you know, war and peace and loss of life and so forth, what is it fundamentally about? Well, I think it's about the American people's security, freedom, and prosperity. And, you know, long story short, I think our basic goal is what I think of as an anti-hegemonic one, which is basically we don't want any country or entity to be able to be so dominant out in the international system that it could impose its will on our, on our way of life and really undermine our way of life. And if we look at the world that way, by far the most significant challenge of that happening is China dominating Asia, because Asia is going to be upwards of 50% of global GDP in the coming years. You know, it's, it's kind of the center of the world again after, you know, half a millennium. And China is by far the strongest state. Now, Russia is still very obviously a very dangerous and aggressive power. Iran's out there. North Korea's out there. Terrorists are out there. I mean, you could, the list could go on. But the question is, you know, now, unlike, say, 20 years ago, we're not so much more powerful than any of our potential threats over the things that we would care to, to fight about. I mean, we're not talking about marching to Moscow or Beijing. What we're talking about is defending our, basically our allies, and their allies are important not in them themselves, but because they're, they're coalitions to prevent China from dominating Asia or Russia from dominating you know, Europe, potentially. Right, right. And so that's what we're really, I think, focused on. So, Bridge, where is the United States military today in being able to meet the requirements of this new era of great power competition? What grade, you know, would you give us and why would you give it that grade? You know, in what ways are we prepared? In what ways are we falling short? But I'd love for you to start with a good old-fashioned letter grade. How are we doing? Interesting. I would give us, uh, unfortunately, something probably in the C minus kind of vicinity. And that's not because of anything wrong with, you know, the people serving in the military sure, or anything. Sure. But it's because, you know, I'm very much of the view that we need to prioritize what needs to be prioritized. And that's China and Asia. And there are real doubts about our ability to win a fight with the Chinese military in the years to come over, you know, a plausible war. In that region. And so, you know, there are good things happening, and that's why I'm not giving us an F. The Marines, for instance, the Air Force is doing some good stuff, things out at Indo-PACOM, U.S. Army Pacific, these kinds of things. But it's not enough. And I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs last month in August, you know, kind of juxtaposing, you know, some very good rhetoric, particularly out of the Biden administration, about the problem of China and, and particularly the threat to Taiwan. The divergence between the rhetoric and what's actually happening. We're not making the moves that are necessary to keep up. So to me, you know, Winston Churchill said, if you get things right in the key theater, you can put everything else right again afterwards, but not the reverse. We're not where we need to be in the key theater and things maybe seem to be getting worse. And of course, we're dealing in Xi Jinping with a leader who seems very assertive, confident, and, and, and frankly, brutal. So I, I think that's uh, imprudent, to say the least. Where are we right now in our ability to defend Taiwan from a Chinese invasion if they decided to do it, you know, within the next few months? Well, I think there's, I mean, you're, you're an intelligence professional. I think I don't have access to all the data, but I think even more, we're dealing now with a situation with a conflict where it's, you know, inherently unpredictable to some extent. I mean, because when you're thinking about how a war would go, you're, you're thinking about how individuals and systems would interact and who would win and so forth and how they would work together. It's really impossible to be certain. But what's disturbing, I would say, is that I think we're in the sort of the window. We have entered a period in which it is 
it's a close call at best. So just to give you an, an example, the Taiwan defense minister, actually this was last year, said that China may already have the ability to take over Taiwan in an invasion, including in the face of an American uh, intervention on Taiwan's behalf, you know, at relatively high cost, but that by the middle of the decade, Taiwan's assessment is that China would be able to do it relatively easily. And if you look at the, the, the best military you know, thinkers and analysts, people like Andrew Krepinevich and Bob Work and David Akmanik, they're, they're sounding the alarm. And so it is a remediable problem if we allocate the focus and the resources and the senior level attention. But right now, I think we're on a trajectory to really put ourselves in a position where losing is, is if not just a very real possible, maybe even just the probable outcome. And then let's flip to the other side of the globe for a second. Where are we in terms of our ability to, say, defend the Baltics if Putin made a move against them? Well, I, you know, I've, I've always taken the Russians seriously, but I think we have to say that they've, you know, their capability has eroded. I mean, I know the official assessment, DNI uh, of Real Haines said, you know, that they would struggle to mount a second front war. Right. And of course, they're having difficulty, you know, against Ukraine. And that's, you know, without the full scale NATO response. So I would say we're in a, in a better position, mostly because the Russians have, you know, kind of broken their spear, but also maybe demonstrated that they weren't as formidable as we thought. And again, I don't think we should count them out at all, to the contrary, but I think we're, we're probably in a better position. And that, that's part of what informs my assessment that we should, you know, even more what's happened in Ukraine, actually, instead of getting us to focus more of our military effort on Europe, it should actually be the reverse, because the Russians are having, they're bogged down, they're having real difficulty, the Europeans are doing more. So why don't we focus on that decisive priority theater? Yeah, it's interesting, right, that uh, as, as Russia is getting weaker, we're investing more in Europe and the Europeans are investing more, right? Just the opposite of what you would think. So, Bridge, why are we falling short, right? What are the factors that are behind, you know, our, our not being where we need to be? Is it a lack of recognition of the threat? Is it a lack of a strategy to deal with a threat? Is it bureaucratic inertia inside the Defense Department, the politics of war fatigue. What's going on here? Well, it's it's a really important question, Michael, and it's one I, I actually struggle with a lot because in, in a sense, you know, kind of what you just said, it is it is strange. I mean, in, and particularly, it's particularly strange given that there is sort of a consensus. I mean, in an era when there's a lot of obviously divisiveness at home on, on, on almost everything, actually one area where there's quite substantial agreement is that China's, you know, not only a threat, but really kind of the biggest threat and yet it's not, it's not happening. And I, I, I confess I get, I get, I kind of go up the wall from time to time because I don't, I don't understand. I think if I had to put it down, there are these bureaucratic explanations and organizational and difficulties. But I think, look, you know, the United States, if we put our mind to something, we can usually figure it out if it's something, you know, solvable. If we wanted to, we could, we could get after this problem. I think that the sort of er explanation, if you will, you know, if we were looking at it as an analyst is... I don't think that there's a sufficient appreciation of how strong China is, especially, I'll be candid, especially in the, frankly, the the sort of more senior and older ranks of the political leadership and the national security leadership. I've always found it's actually less a state of a partisan issue about how much of China, how much China is a challenge than it is an age issue in the sense that I think, you know, China's rise has been so meteoric over the last generation that it's kind of hard to process. And I think a lot of people just don't, you know, really believe that they could actually pull off challenging the United States directly. And I think that's, I think that's a grave mistake. But that's sort of all I can, I can really, you know, account for. 
what people are saying and what we kind of know analytically and empirically is our strategic situation, our military situation is not being matched up with what we're doing. I wonder if, you know, to what extent the Russian invasion of Ukraine will get people's attention on China. You know, one of the things I do is I brief, I brief companies on kind of the threats in the world. And, you know, there was, there's been a big change in how, how closely people listen now to what I say, given the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine. So I'm wondering if people may pay more attention. I think you're right. I think in a way it's a mixed. I mean, I think it's distracted us in the sense uh, from Asia in the sense that that it's it's pulled attention to Europe. And I mean, you know better than anybody. I mean, senior level attention is scarce and there's only so much of it to go around. And I think too much of it's going to Europe and Ukraine. And, and I say that I do think we should support the Ukrainians and, and, and you know, oppose Russia's invasion. But I just, you know, I look at it kind of from a strategic point of view, geopolitical point of view, like we're not allocating our, our you know, if you were a company, we, were, we would be misallocating our resources and efforts in, in, in the grand scheme of, of things. But I think to your point, Michael, the key thing is, is I think people can now imagine that a major war would happen. They can imagine that a country like China would decide to, you know, as Harold Brown put it, make the cosmic roll of the dice and, and like not only invade Taiwan, but precipitate a war with the United States. And I think that that's salutary in the sense that that is, a, I think, an accurate assessment. And, and Putin has in a sense, shown that that is a real, a real possibility. So, and I think also, especially with companies, that the political is not sort of, and the military and strategic are not really separate from the economic. These things are, are going to be, you know, integrated at some level. You know, one of the things when you're talking about do people sufficiently understand the significance of the threat, I was thinking back to prior to 9-11 and how difficult it was to get policymakers in both, in both parties, the Clinton administration and the Bush administration, early Bush administration, to understand that a group of, of ragtag guys, right, in dirt training camps in Afghanistan could pose a significant threat to the United States. It was just difficult to get your mind around. So that's what I was thinking when you were talking about, you know, do people fully appreciate the threat? The other thing I was thinking, which is actually more scary, is our country, as you know, has a way of not dealing with an issue until there's a crisis, right? We're not proactive, right? We weren't proactive on terrorism prior to 9-11. We weren't proactive on the pandemic in terms of preparations. So that worries me here, right? Is Does something bad have to happen before we wake up and realize what we have to do here vis-a-vis -vis China? I, I worry about that a lot too. And you know, another historical example would, of course, be our, our entry into the Second World War. That I think in a lot of the back of people's minds, there's sort of this idea that, hey, we're America, and if we need to, we can always, you know, just kind of like gin up the Detroit deterrent or whatever, you know, the, the industry and so forth, and we'll we'll be able to take care of the Chinese if they get too big for the britches. And that's that's wrong for a couple reasons. I mean, one is, you know, as you mentioned kindly, the, the Wall Street Journal article I co-authored with my, my good friend uh, Alex Gray, which is like our defense industrial base is a shadow of what it was, or sort of our industrial base as a whole is a shadow of what it was in 1941. In fact, the world's largest industrial base, the world's largest shipbuilding industry is in China, you know, and that's, and that's also a very costly way of doing it. And China's a pure economy. You know, when Japan attacked us in 1941, it was 10% the size of the American economy, you know, Al-Qaeda, exactly right. You know, I mean, if we put our mind to it, we could make a lot of progress against, thanks to efforts of people, people like you, could make a lot of progress against that, against that threat. With China, it's a, it's a really fundamentally different story. And I think a lot of our habits are, are bad. The, the one 
you know, major instance that gives me more hope, though, is the Cold War. I mean, we, we were not prepared in Korea, but after Korea, you know, we did maintain a footing in Europe that was never going to let the Soviets really get away with, you know, kind of running the tables on us in a way that, that China could. So that, that's, I think, the Cold War is an imperfect model in a lot of ways, but I think in the military context and thinking about deterrence, it's, it's a good example. So, Bridge, I want to kind of switch gears here to kind of what do we do about this, right? And I want to put you in two different roles here. The first role is I want to put you in the job of the National Security Advisor. And I want to want you to talk a little bit about an overall strategy, right, vis-a-vis China. Not just military, but an overall strategy. What do you think that strategy should, um, should look like? What are the key, What are the key components of it? I think our overall strategy, again, is this anti-hegemonic goal. So our goal needs to be to deny China a kind of a soft imperial control of Asia, because if they have that position, they will be able to be dominant in the world and they will undermine our liberties and our prosperity, I have little to no doubt. So I think in this context, how do we do that? Well, we can't, we're not powerful or really resolute enough on our own to do it. So we need a balance of power. We need a coalition. I mean, it's pretty old school, but there's a reason it's tried and true. And so the key here needs to be forming a coalition that can block China's attempt to dominate Asia. Now, so far, so good. I think that's pretty unremarkable and, and widely agreed. I think where I would differ from the way, as I understand it, the administration has been pursuing this, and I, I'm taking this not only from their statements, but you know, uh, Jake Sullivan wrote a piece in Foreign Policy a couple years ago that was actually kind of pivoting off of an argument that I had been making uh, or uses as kind of a foil, is I think is how central, Michael, is hard power, and how much is this a regional versus a global context? In fact, this is kind of Nadia Shadlow's reaction, the, you know, the lead of the national security strategy in the Trump administration. This is, this is kind of the key issue. I think that the, the ascendant view, certainly the administration, but I think actually more broadly among many, many across the, the spectrum, is that this is a global competition. It's mostly about economics, soft power, international institutions. I have a little bit more of an old school kind of realist view, if you will, which is that at the end of the day, what matters is to, above all, is to get that hard power, military and kind of hard economic power balance right. And that's largely a matter of the regional balance. So Asia is really the priority theater. Why do I think that? Well, it, it's a little bit for um, a counterintuitive reason. I actually think economic sanctions and economic leverage are very difficult to turn into really effective political outcomes. And I don't, and for that reason, I don't think China, despite its enormous economic heft, is going to be able to turn things like Belt and Road Initiative and these kinds of things into getting the Taiwans, let alone Vietnams, Indias of the world, to give up and accede to their regional hegemony. And I mean, I'm informed by the trouble China's already having, but also our own experience. And I mean, you know this very well. You know, I mean, look at the difficulties we had against Iraq and Iran and North Vietnam and North Korea. Pretty modest record. I mean, sanctions have a place, but I think they tend to be exaggerated in their efficacy. So that's good news in one, one sense that China's economic heft will not allow it to, to be dominant. But it means that the, it, the military instrument takes on a, a greater importance. And in fact, I think one thing Putin in his abominable invasion of, of Ukraine was right about analytically was that he would need to use military force, decisive military force, to get Ukraine, to bring Ukraine to heel. So he was correct about that. I think China will come to the same conclusion. In fact, I think Bill Burns, your successor, said actually, I think at Aspen, that, that, that you know, China would 
take from that Ukraine situation that overwhelming force was the right. So I think that's correct. But if that's correct, that makes the military balance in Asia really, really central. I, I analogize it to kind of like law and order, which is like, you know, if you live in a safe neighborhood, you're not worried about the police. But if you live in a in a dangerous neighborhood, that's all you think about. And so once we get that right, then it will be a long-term competition in economics and technology and all the stuff that the, that, that the administration is talking about. And I agree with, but I actually think they're presuming that that will be the nature of the rivalry with China, but actually we need to work to get to that point. So that I think would be another difference because of that is that I would be more ecumenical about who we work with. I mean, this, if I'm right, then, this, then countries like Japan, of course, Australia, but also India, the ASEAN countries, of course, Taiwan and South Korea, these take on much greater importance. And Europe, while important, takes less importance than I think we're giving to it now. It's not because, I mean, I love going to Europe. You know, it's great, whatever. But I don't think the Europeans are going to bail us out if, we, if there's a war in Asia. They're, they might help on the margin with things like economic sanctions on China, but I don't think they're going to be material. So that really, it gives a different coloration and emphasis to our overall strategy. We're going to take a break, then we'll be right back with more of a replay of our September discussion with Bridge Colby. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, Bridge, perfect transition. So you're no longer the National Security Advisor. Now you're the Secretary of Defense, right? And the president asks you to come to him and tell him what we need to do, right, militarily. What does the defense budget need to look like? What exactly do, do we need to do in terms of force structure? What do we need to do in terms of, of new, new concepts of fighting, right? What does your briefing back to him look like? Let me actually flip it a little bit because my experience is that, and what I try to contribute is, I don't pretend to have all of the answers. What I do think I can do, though, or somebody in that position I believe should really do, is make it very, very clear what the problem to be solved is and the, the support that they will have. So, I mean, I mean, again, we mentioned you know, high-level attention. Well, Secretary Austin is in Europe. Uh, there's this contact group. I would be like, if I, were, if I were Secretary of Defense, I'd be like, cancel all my meetings. I'm going to have a meeting on Taiwan on, all week until we get to a good place, and then we're going to meet again next week. And we're going to do it and we're going to meet over the weekend and we're going to get a plan. And I want to come. And are, are you coming in to help me? You know, if you're the undersecretary or you're a general or admiral, are you coming in to help me solve this problem? What do you need? Give me a credible plan. Okay. Then that's an, oh, I, I'll take option A, B, and C because I want to be sure. And, and then everybody else back of the line. I mean, that's the sort of like, I mean, in a sort of business-like way about what is our priority and what do we need to do to get it? And this is, this is, 
I don't know if, but I, I, you know, the, the, the line that you hear sometimes from the Pentagon that they can walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, no, no serious company is like, oh, hey, we're, you know, our strategy is to walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm also like, well, is, is China walking or chewing gum? You know, I mean, that doesn't sound right. I would be like, this is my priority. What do you need to achieve it? Do we need to change authorities? Do we need to, you know, invest in industry? which could be, by the way, the established players, but also new players. This isn't about just, you know, helping the fat cats, so to speak. Do we need more money for the budget? Do you need me to call up, you know, Senator XYZ, Congressman or woman XYZ, to, to, to say this is why we need to get rid of this program and invest in it? That's what, and then I would say, Mr., you know, come, come to you, Mr. President, what I want is the, is the backing and authority that I'm going to get flack on this, you know, from the Hill, from the press, whatever, but you've got my back and I will go out and I'll make that. And that, that's the sort of, then it's like there are other people who know what the right operational concept is, what the right force structure is. I mean, because in a sense, I think there's, a, you know, I think there's some truth, for instance, the idea that, you know, this the Pacific, you know, especially our interests being more of a maritime theater, obviously the Navy and the Air Force and the Marine. But look, the Army may have a role, too. Depends. You know, and, and look, ground forces entrenched on islands, as we learned in Okinawa and Iwo Jima, can be really tough to deal with. So let's, let's hear it out, but let's move and let's cover down both on the long term, which is a lot of where the emphasis is, is from the Pentagon right now, but also from the near term. I mean, if we're saying we're going to be ready in 2035, we're going to have 100 you know, B-21 next generation heavy bombers, and China knows it's going to have the ability to do it this decade, but it's going to lose the ability to take Taiwan the next decade, well, they're going to have a strong incentive to move this decade. So that's the sort of, that's the approach I would take. I would be like, all right, <laughs> you know, today's uh, priorities, China, 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 China. And then, okay, we're in a good place on that. Okay, let me, let me, I, I got, there's a Europe issue. There's a run. Not to say these aren't important. I'm not, you know, sometimes people say, I'm saying we should abandon Europe. Or the, no, but I'm saying we need to act in a way that is consistent with our actual strategic situation. And fundamentally, we're not doing that right now. So you're talking about leadership. At the end of the day, you're talking about leadership. And it reminds me, it, it reminds me, Bridge, that, you know, people ask me, what difference did Leon Panetta make to the hunt? for bin Laden, because obviously we never stopped looking for him, right? Well, the difference he made was because of his leadership. What he did, he did exactly what you said. He came in and he said, okay, you guys have been looking for him for, you know, eight years. I want you to come and see me every week and tell me what progress you've made. And believe me, you don't want to come to that meeting, right, and say nothing happened the last week. <laughs> right. So it it, right. it drives you, right? It forces you into actions, and and it's just basic leadership at the end of the day that you're talking about here. Yeah, whether I, in business yeah. or government. Yeah, exactly. And and recognizing that that's going to mean you know less attention doesn't mean that you're just going to ignore something else. But you know the way I put it is like I mean that's a great example. I, I might steal that if you don't mind. But but. But, you know, it's, you, you, let's say you're, 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 in a, you're in a boat, you know, a, a pretty large boat, but you've got a hole, uh, you know, above the waterline. you got a, a, a hole kind of near – that's maybe like Iran or North Korea. you got a hole it's just sort of just above the waterline where water's getting into the boat, but you're not going to sink. And then you've got a big growing hole under the waterline. doesn't mean you're not going to take care of those other holes. You're not going to just – but, like, you better make sure that you get that hole below the waterline taken care of stat, right? That's your, that's your number one priority. So, Bridge, I think – Right. There's got to be a piece here where where the senior leadership of the country, right, the president, you know, the, the senior cabinet members on the National Security Fund, senior members of Congress have to talk to the American people, right, about the threat that China poses and what we have to do about it. Or we're never going to get the buy-in we need from 
the voters at the end of the day. I think that's right. I'm actually a bit mystified why that hasn't happened. In fact, I think, I mean, this is sort of um, the risk of being a little bit trite, but I mean, I think the voters are ahead of the elite in the sense that that you know China is 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 the top threat that's registered in in polling from what I can tell and and I think that's now true across the political spectrum it, you know under the Trump administration it was I think Democrats were not necessarily as there but I think since since the Biden administration's come in and both you know their own em- emphasis but also the the treatment you know from China the voters are pretty much are pretty much there I think it's more a matter of of allocating political capital and I I got to be honest, Michael, I'm a little mystified because I think, you know, the administration is pretty candid, including, you know, their senior intelligence officials, that there is a threat to Taiwan. That's a that's a very real threat before 2027. And it's sort of like, well, if that's real, I mean, that's that's by far the most significant thing that could happen in the international security domain. Wouldn't you want to cover down on that? Why wouldn't you give a speech? And, and all like, I mean, you know, without getting... I, I, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm not, I, I don't know how this all, but like, you know, we've spent a lot of money, you know, since the pandemic, rightly or wrongly, wouldn't we want to take care of, you know, I don't know, $50 billion. I mean, it's a lot of money, but in the scheme of what we're spending, wouldn't we want to kind of cover down on that? I, and I think there would be a lot of receptivity across the political spectrum. I mean, maybe some parts are obviously not, but it's kind of mystifying to me. And that, that again, you asked earlier, what, what, what's missing? And I, I can only... I can only infer that there isn't really a true appreciation of the scale of the threat, because I think if there were, that would be happening. Or as you talked about earlier, which I thought was a a, a fantastic distinction, what is the threat at the end of the day? Is it this global economic and influence threat, or is it a military threat, right? That might be a, that could be a big difference here. I think you're right. Yeah, that could could be it. Um, Except the administration is talking about the military threat now. I mean, it's pretty... And I think to your point, I mean, the, the Ukraine situation should have shown us that this stuff can happen, you know. Right, right. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
So, Bridge, we've been talking a lot about the military here. Shift gears a little bit. Talk about some other critical enablers, I think, of deterrence. And start with maybe something that I might have better insight into than, than you do, but I want to ask you about, which is intelligence, right? Intelligence capabilities. You know, do you have any insight into whether the intelligence community, and particularly those parts that serve the Department of Defense, are where they need to be to deal with this threat? Well, you, you would certainly know far better than I, Michael, that's for sure. I would say I was encouraged by Burns's statements, both in his nomination hearings, but also since he's, you know, been serving as director, that he, that China is the focus. I tend to have a, I think intelligence often gets a, a sort of a, a bum deal in the sense that like, it's an inherently difficult enterprise because you're being asked to predict, you know, things that really can't be perfectly predicted. And you're trying to get information from countries that have a strong interest and ability in deceiving you and hiding and stuff like that. So so we've got to be realistic in what we can expect. But I think from what I can tell, you know, I mean, and some of this happened during the Cold War too. I think there was a lot of focus uh, after 9-11 for very good reason on the counterterrorism threat. We've kind of got to get back to the sort of the kind of espionage basics of intelligence, obviously espionage, but also technical intelligence uh, collection methods, but just trying to get after these really hard targets, particularly China, but also Russia. And I mean, I think that's especially, and again, you you would know this infinitely better than I, but in in an era of kind of ubiquitous electronic, you know, surveillance and connection, that's probably tough, but I think we need to, we need to try to try to do our best. And I think what you described the Secretary of Defense needs to do, right, is exactly what the Director of National Intelligence needs to do. I wouldn't let the intelligence community off too easy <laughs> with regard to this is hard work. When I was briefing President Bush every morning, I made the mistake once of telling him that intelligence collection in North Korea was hard. And he said, Michael, I know it's hard, but I still expect you to do it. So um, I don't <laughs> that's right. Think we shouldn't we shouldn't give anybody any uh, room to. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's right. Per- don't let him off the hook. Okay. <laughs> don't let him off the hook. Right. A real businessman wouldn't do that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Expect I the impossible. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The second question I want to ask you is about the economic piece of this and and how you feel about industrial policy vis-a-vis China. Where are you on that? Yeah, well, first, I'm not an economist or, or, you know, uh, I mean, it's more uh, kind of derivative view for me. But I I do think industrial policy is is warranted, particularly in key areas, of course, the defense industrial base, but also things like semiconductors. I mean, I think we could have a debate about whether industrial policy is better than a pure free market system in the abstract. But that's not the world we're living in. We're living in a world in which the largest economy in the world and the largest growing economy in the world, you know, with us is actively practicing industrial policy on a galactic scale. So in that context, I think industrial policy is just kind of necessary because we can't, I mean, I think we ran an experiment probably over a 20 you know, year, year period after, after the entry of China into the WTO where we was said, well, there might be practicing industrial policy, but we'll be, you know, free, not, you know, not pure free market, but more free market than they, and we hope that, and we expect that we'll do better. I don't think that's been borne out, as you can see through deindustrialization and the semiconductor problem. So I think industrial policy is necessary. I also think, I mean, look, trade 
is in bad odor in the country across the political spectrum. I personally am sympathetic in a lot of ways because I, I think it's related to the deindustrialization issue and a loss of credibility on, for instance, holding China to, to account for its commitments in entering the WTO. But again, thinking about it kind of from the overall strategic picture, you know, China's going to be 1.4 billion people, or I mean, the population's shrinking, but over a billion people. And, you know, as Bob Work and Eric Schmidt point out and, and others in their AI commission report, scale is absolutely critical. The Chinese have a huge internal market. They're going to have like cadet markets that they're selling into. We have to be able to scale out at a comparable, you know, sort of level. And so we're going to have to have, I mean, free world sounds a little more sort of, I don't mean to be sound kind of more flight of fancy, flights, but like of rhetoric. But I mean, we're going to need a trading area that's going to match it. Now, what I would say is that maybe we could have that negotiated by Bob Lighthizer or somebody like that, you know, so we get as good a deal. That, that's, but I think that's where we're going to have to end up. You know, if we succeed in getting into a long-term economic competition with China, that's, I think, the model we're probably going to need to go towards. And then, Bridge, without being partisan in any way here, the last issue I wanted to talk to you about is our politics, right? It seems to me that fixing our politics is a necessary condition for us to be able to do what we need to do in a foreign policy and national security sense. And I just wanted to get your reaction to that. Well, I... I I would agree to a point. I'm not sure we need to, to fix it. I mean, I, you know, obviously that's, that's a term that can encompass a lot of different meanings. I, I, think, I think, you know, I look, I mean, it, it, you know, we're, 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 we're both Americans. We know the history. But, like, I mean, I, I look back at American history and, and, and I see a lot of, you know, um, uh, turbulence, frankly, and a lot of, you know, vim and, and, and hefty debate. Things are, things are pretty intense right now, and I think it would behoove everybody to you know, step back and take a, take a deep breath, and and kind of and also kind of keep things in perspective. I mean, you know, I have my own strong views and have real concerns about where the country's going and all that. But I mean, there's not mass starvation. There's not, you know, I, I mean, like we've got a great thing going here for you know two two centuries plus. There there are lots of things that that need to change, and and I have one view of where they need to go. Others have others' views, whatever. But like, let's keep this in perspective. And one thing that that's for sure is that a world dominated by China and an America that's kind of at the mercy of China is going to be a lot worse because we're not even going to have the power to change, to chart our own future. I mean, that's one of the premises about a lot of our debates right now is like, hey, we get to choose our own future. You know, it's really up to us. That is an issue right now. And we need to keep these kinds of things in perspective. Bridget, any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? No, it's really a great conversation with you, Michael, and, you know, with your distinguished record. But also, I mean, I just think... This China issue, I mean, I guess the, the way I end my book, uh, and I, I think I try to end this, is like, I, I'm really, I get passionate about this because I don't know the future. I mean, you're an intelligence professor, and you can never know the future. But I look at the factors that China might have in front of me. And if I were, you know, I try to be a ruthless jerk for America as a strategist. And, and you know, but so part of that, I try to think, well, what, what would my analog in Beijing be thinking? And I look at the factors that they might see, and I see a lot of reasons why they could think it's in their interest and rational to precipitate a conflict, frankly. And that worries me a lot, and I desperately don't want that to happen. But I'm also equally convinced that the best way to prevent that from happening is to be manifestly so prepared and so ready that Beijing, they always decide, sure, I might like to take back Beijing. Sure, I might like to unseat the Americans. Sure, I might like to humiliate Japan, but it's just not going to work, so I'm not going to try. And that... We have a limited window 
to try to to try to fix that, and we should seize the opportunity. We want them to to uh, every time they think about one of those things, we want them to say, "But the risk is too high." Exactly. But the risk is too high. Bridge, thank you so much for joining us. Sobering discussion, but thank you for joining us. I learned a lot. I'm sure my listeners will as well. Thank you. Thank you. That was a replay of our discussion earlier this year with Bridge Colby. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.